All right. Good evening. Revelation chapter 11. Don't, don't look at uh, the verses that are up there. Do not look at them. It should be three through six. And um, we may not even get there. So we'll see how, how it all goes. <clears throat> but... Um, the more I study Revelation chapter 11, the more I wish I could get out of Revelation chapter 11. Because there's a whole lot of other chapters coming up and we want to get to them. But it is essential. I said this a few weeks ago when we were getting into chapter 11, that this was the most difficult chapter of the book of Revelation, as well as one that needs to be very foundational in our understanding of everything else from here on. Chapter 12 through to the end. And uh, so, uh, establishing all of those points and issues take a little longer if we're doing this properly and if we're doing it as an in-depth study rather than just kind of uh, an overview of things. So there's, there's some things we're also going to learn tonight in this little section that we're going to deal with <clears throat> that actually take us back to things we've already studied, but we're going to be able to see how important those things were then and how, how much more important they are now. And, and you'll understand that when I, when I get there. But let's, let's start at verse 1 again, and the reason is for context's sake. Just for context's sake. John is saying that uh, he was given a reed. So he says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, those two verses we've already dealt with the last two weeks of our first two studies in Revelation chapter 11. So if you weren't here with us, uh, for those, you need to sign up and get the, uh, the, the CDs for those two, uh, parts one and parts two of verses one and two. <laughs> okay. But then it goes on in verse three and it says, And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two uh, lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven 
so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire, as often as those two witnesses desire. We're going to begin our study this evening on the identity of these two witnesses. I had this picture up a few weeks ago as we entered into chapter 11, and I don't know how clear it is for you, but uh, there are two olive trees uh, on either side of the entrance to the temple, if you'll notice. And uh, then there are two lampstands, two menorahs uh, on either one. So this is how they are described uh, in, in this particular passage here. But I begin once again with verses 1 and 2 because, as I stated in our past two studies of this chapter, we have a very Jewish focus now. We have a very Jewish focus and a, a very Jewish language being given to us by the Apostle John. And we have drawn our attention to the aforementioned temple and the city in which it will reside, the city of Zion, Jerusalem, the heart of Israel. Israel being the heart and the epicenter of the world. The Jewish language and the symbolism continues in verse Three and following. Two witnesses who are called the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now again, you're, you're, you're noticing what has been mentioned, a temple, Jewish. The altar, Jewish. The witnesses, Jewish. Olive trees, menorahs, Jewish. So, where does that take us if we are looking at this from the standpoint of future? The only place that the Bible always points to. Not metaphorically to some other place or heaven or whatever. To Israel. To Jerusalem to the city of Zion, to the place described in, in, in a, a thousand times, by the way, in Scripture, as the city of our great King. Beautiful for situation. Really, to be the joy of the whole earth. That is what Mount Zion is supposed to be. But we live in times where nothing is, is as it is designed by God to be until God makes it so. When Jesus himself will enter into that city again and rule and reign on the throne of David. That's the promise. That's the prophecy. The prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're getting there. We're, we're moving slowly, but we're getting there in our study of the book of Revelation. But much of our time this evening will be in identifying these two witnesses in the passage that we'll be looking at will help us in our identification of, of these persons. And just as a point of review, 
Let's remember chapter 10, where we saw John take the Word of God, the scroll, and eat it as he was commanded, and, and then he digested it. And how sweet God's blessings were to him as he ate God's Word. But as he began to digest the things of God, he saw the consequences of disobedience. He saw the consequences of disobedience. I repeat that because we need to remember that there are consequences to sin. The world is in, this, in the condition that it is in because it has chosen uh, wholesale, as it were. Not everyone, of course, because we are believers in Jesus Christ and we want to follow the Word of God and we are, are thankful for the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, that we will live forever with Him in, in glory and in heaven and, 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 and ever be with the Lord as He said we would be. But the world as a whole has rejected that message. And nowhere does it say that we ourselves as the church are going to change that. What we have been called to do is preach the gospel, let everyone know that Jesus Christ is Messiah, that He is Lord, that He is the Savior, that He is the Redeemer. These are the things that we've been called to do uh, to, to evangelize, to bring people to Christ. By the way, we wouldn't be sitting here as believers in Jesus Christ if somebody didn't do that for us. So these are the things that we, we're doing, but we know that God has already said, this is the way the world's going to be. But he has also did, he's also done this. He has promised us a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new Jerusalem too. So the, these are the things that we're looking forward to. But we have to remember the consequences of disobedience. We cannot be presumptuous in our faith. We cannot be presumptuous in our Christianity. We must live our lives for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. But, but as he began to digest the things of God, he saw God's righteous judgment, which was bitter to him. Remember, he says it was sweet to his taste, but it was bitter in his stomach. And he saw God's righteous judgment, and it was bitter to him because he knew what would happen to those who would have, or who would, or who would, who have rejected, I should say, and would reject Christ. So to those who have rejected Christ and to those who will reject Christ, there is the bitterness of judgment. And as chapter 10 concluded, John was told not to hide God's Word, not to sugarcoat it, not to sugarcoat the results of disobedience. Because I believe there are people today who are trying to do that in the world, in, in, in the church as well. Sugarcoat the gospel. God is going to accept everyone, no matter what you do, no matter what you are, no matter who you are, no matter what. Is that what the scriptures say? If that, if that were the case, then we don't need to read the Bible. Then we don't need, need to see it as, as, as something of truth, maybe just something to kind of have along so that we can kind of pick and choose certain things in it. 
Do you see the irrationality of that? So John is told not to hide God's word, not to sugarcoat the results, but to speak forth the truths of God. This is why it says in Revelation 10 verse 11, he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and kings. All that is going to happen, you need to prophesy about it. And if you read the Old Testament, you read the prophets of Israel, you realize that they were given a a message to preach the gospel. But in 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 that dispensation, in that time frame, it was to preach repentance. It was to bring them back to the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because they, as God's people, had gone away from God. So he says, you must prophesy again about these things and about what is, to, what is to come. That's the context. So you see, no matter what age we're living in, there will always be a spokesman for the Lord. Even during the time of great tribulation, there will be spokesmen. And I mentioned that plural because there are two witnesses here in this chapter that we're studying. Now, one thing to keep in mind. Before the 70th week of Daniel begins, now the 70th week, we've talked about it from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The 70th week is the seven-year period of tribulation that Israel will go through, but that the world will also be judged during that time. So, before the 70th week of Daniel begins, now please listen to me carefully because this is very important as we move on uh, through some of the things we're going to look at before the end of this study. But before the 70th week of Daniel begins, we've studied this already, before the tribulation period starts, the church is caught up. The word in the Greek is harpazo. The church is caught up, raptured as it were, to be with the Lord. We've already gone through that, happened as we were entering our study in chapter chapter 4. But again, before, and I bring it up because I will bring it up again later, but before the tribulation begins, the bride of Christ, the church, will be removed from the earth, and then God's wrath will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. Now, I want you to remember this, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11, Paul said, For God did not appoint us to wrath. What have we been talking about ever since we entered into chapter 6? Wrath. We're not talking about persecution. The church has been persecuted since the first century. Even even actually the first months and weeks of the church, the church has been persecuted. We're not talking about persecution. We're talking about wrath. And there has to be a, a, a very clear distinction. So he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So we are doing that as much as, as possible, encouraging each other that, listen, let's not be ignorant about God's word and all of this. But God did not appoint us to wrath. So here are a couple of questions that need to be asked. With the church removed from the picture, with the church removed from the picture, who will speak for God? Because for the, the age of grace, it has been the church that has been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when the church is removed, who will speak for God? 
Uh, just think about the questions. Second question, who will stand up for righteousness in a world filled with sin? Who will stand up for righteousness in a world filled with sin? Third question. How will the 144 Jewish evangelists that we read about in chapter 7, how will they get saved? Fourth question. Who will evangelize the lost with the church of God? Well, I've kind of given you a hint of that in time past, which is, of course... The 144 Jewish evangelists are going to go out into the world and preach the gospel. And, and the tribulation saints, those who come to the Lord, will, will be saved during that time. But who preached to the 144,000? Now let me give you a little hint here. We've talked about it in, in studies previous to this. That uh, when we're going through these chapters in Revelation, not always are things going to be chronological. So we have already seen times when we've jumped into the second half of the tribulation period. And then we go back to the first half of the tribulation period. At some point we were doing uh, kind of chronologically. We started, you know, in chapter 6 with, with our understanding of, of, of the four horsemen. And, 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 and that was kind of the introduction to uh, the, the tribulation and there was a little chronology there, but all of a sudden the chronology changed. And then we were going into some very deep kind of judgments, but then we would go back a little bit. So don't, and this is common in, in, in actually in prophetic writing in the scriptures, that we don't always consider that everything has to be chronological as we are explaining it. And this is very important to our study in chapter 11, because we are going to see that we're going back a little bit just to set the first half of the tribulation period once again in some things that are happening there in this chapter. So that, that is why I'm asking these questions the way I am. Who will speak for God if the church is removed? Who will stand up for righteousness in a world filled with sin? How will the 144,000 evangelists uh, that we read about get saved? And who will evangelize the lost with the church gone? Well, that answers itself there. But it is my hope that these questions will be answered tonight. So let me just bring one more passage to your remembrance before we begin. Because we need to establish this again in our hearts as a review, but nonetheless as, as a help in our study here. In Romans 10 verse 13, Paul said, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now is this a principle that, that, uh, that extends from Genesis to Revelation? Yes, don't be afraid to answer. That was an easy question. Wait till I ask the hard questions. Then you're going, I don't want to answer. That was easy. Yeah, it's, it's just from the beginning. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then? But now he asks questions. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have, in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How are they going to know unless there is a preacher? Unless there is a spokesman or spokespersons. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now this is a very sad verse. Because the gospel has 
been preached and is being preached even today. We are still in the in the in the in an age of grace, a dispensation of grace. And yet they have not all believed the gospel. Or they have not all obeyed, I, I should say, the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. A principle we cannot ignore or set aside as we come to chapter 11 and the introduction to the two witnesses because these witnesses are obviously chosen of God, called of God, prepared by God, equipped by God, protected by God for a time, and used by God in a very critical time on this earth. And it will be a critical critical time when it comes. So this has been God's plan from the beginning. So that the world will have no excuse in not hearing the gospel message. The Lord will raise up faithful witnesses to proclaim His word to a Christ-rejecting world. And it must be noted that there are two false witnesses to be confronted. Okay, now it's time to get your pencils ready. Two false witnesses to be confronted here. You have two true witnesses to confront two false witnesses. Okay? Ready? Obviously, we're going to be introduced later to the false witness of Antichrist and the false prophet. Those are not the two together. That's just one. That's just one deception there. The false witness of Antichrist and the false prophets, which we're going to deal with soon enough. But the second is this, and it's actually the first. The false witness of the new temple and its sacrifices. Now, I alluded to this last week, if you were here. I talked about the fact that that temple is going to be up. The sacrifices are going to be going on again. They're going to be allowed to do that. Israel, most of the religious people in Israel will rejoice because now they have their temple and now they're going to sacrifice again. But I mentioned to you, it's a false witness. Why? Because you see, the false witness of the new temple and its sacrifices are a false witness of the true and living God. Because the perfect sacrifice has been made for our sins already through Jesus Christ, who has paid the penalty in full. Let me stop there for just a moment and bring up something I brought up last week. <clears throat> because I mentioned, you know, that we get excited. Oh, man, they're... You know, when we go to Israel, we go to the Temple Institute, and we see all of this stuff that they've made... And we're excited. Are we excited because they're going to be uh, sacrificing animals again? No, we're excited because, because they're going to do that. Jesus is coming soon. That's why we should get excited. But not excited because they're going to be offering sacrifices again because the sacrifice has already been made. You'll understand that. That's a false witness. 
That reminds us of the blindness of the Jewish people not to see and recognize and, re- and, and, and receive the Messiah. So, uh, is that understood now? Okay. So with this in mind, let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. Revelation eleven three, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees and the, lamp, and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So, it is significant then to note immediately that the reason these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth is that the burden of their message will be one of judgment. The burden of their message will be one of judgment. If we were to see people out in sackcloth and ashes, you know, throwing ashes or whatever up in the air, but if, they, if we were see, uh, seeing somebody out there on the street with sackcloth on, what would we say? I mean, honestly, what would we say? Man, that guy's nuts. Why is he doing that? He might be nuts because he might think he's one of the two witnesses. You understand that? So we, we don't have to worry about that right now because we're not in the age of judgment, we're in the age of grace. Judgment's coming. And people are judging themselves all the time as long as they're taking their lives into their own hands and sinning and doing whatever they want. But there's still grace available if they will, re, you know, reject the, that lifestyle and come to Jesus. Or reject any kind of lifestyle that keeps them away from God and come to Jesus. So you understand then... That this is going to be very significant, and it's also going to be very significant where they're going to be. Now, sackcloth itself was a word that was used for the garment worn when one was expressing mourning or declaring the need for repentance. It, it is obvious then that these two witnesses are declaring the need for repentance. To some extent, they're also mourning. Why? They were mourning because a nation that should know its God is not seeing their God is not recognizing truly who their God is, who has been sent or who, who has come, which is Jesus. They didn't recognize him. They didn't see him before. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. So they're here to declare the need for repentance. You know how significant that is? We're going to talk about John the Baptist later this week and next week, by the way. But you know how significant then it is that when John appeared, what was he preaching? Repentance. Now, we don't see him wearing sackcloth. We, we, we hear that he was wearing, you know, camel hair. I don't know which one's worse. Wearing camel skin or, or sackcloth. <laughs> A little itchy there, you know. Both would probably be that way, but, but that's the thing. And these witnesses, they have no rank, as we, we, we kind of see that in these two verses. They have no rank or high level of status upon the earth, other than the fact that they will stand in the presence of and before the God of the earth. So when we read down through verse 13, which we will do eventually, but when we read down through verse 13, this is what we discover about these two witnesses, okay? First of all, they are persons. They are really people. They're not some metaphor or some illustration or some symbol. 
They're real people. Secondly, they are prophets. That we see very clearly here in verse 3. They're prophets. They are powerful. Again, it's told us in our text here in the first two verses, verses 3 and 4, I should say. They are powerful. They will be persecuted. It says they are persecuted. They will be persecuted. You might want to change that. I might want to change that, but I can't change it now. They will be persecuted, but they will also be preserved. They are persons. They're real. They're prophets. They're powerful. They will be persecuted at a given time, but then they will be preserved. So keep that in mind. Let's start with the first one. We're not going to do them all tonight because, of course, we have to get down to verse 13, which we won't do tonight, even though I kind of faked you out at the beginning. They are persons. In other words, these two witnesses are not the law and the gospel. As some people say, well, you know, those two witnesses represent the law and the gospel. No, they are not the law and the gospel. Or they are not, neither are they, I should say, neither are they the Old and the New Testaments, as some people have thought. Because these witnesses speak, they have mouths, they are heard, they are handled, and by the way, they are hated. They are hated. Well, if you read on, I'm not telling you not to, but read on and see what it says. They are individuals. Now, because we are taken back to the beginning of the seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week, with verses 1 and 2 of our text dealing with the temple, we can assume then, we can assume then that for the first three and a half years of this seven-year tribulation period, these two men will represent God before the people. So that's when I said earlier about the, not to follow very strictly the chronology, because now we're kind of back at the beginning of the first, and a half, uh, the first three and a half years of the seven-year period. And as they minister the gospel of Christ, wearing their uncomfortable sackcloth against their skin. But let, me, let me interject this thought of the sackcloth. Because sometimes we just kind of, well, they wear a sackcloth. Well, no, understand this. In the time that they will be ministering, in the time that they will be preaching, in the time that they will be prophesying, They are not getting comfortable in the wicked conditions around them. And I think that that says a lot about us. Or at least it says a lot to us. That we ought not to get comfortable with the wicked conditions that are going on around us today. If we are indeed to be vessels of righteousness and vessels of honor for God and for Christ if we are indeed vessels of the Holy Spirit that we are to be then, then, then we need to consider well we, we talked about this on Sunday and Saturday 
how we need to know how to deal with the vessel that we are for God. We're not living in, in, in pleasant times, are we? We are living in wicked times, and so we need not get comfortable in the wicked conditions around us. Well, they're going to be, they are ministering the gospel. As they do this, they will during these first three and a half years of tribulation see. They will see the salvation of 144,000 plus many other Jews and Gentiles. They will see the salvation of those 144,000. So we might ask, wow, they're going to be of the tribes of Israel. We already talked about that back in chapter 7. But they've got to come to know Christ. Why? Because of what Paul said in Romans chapter 10. How will they believe? Until they hear. So something to think about. It is quite possible that they will be ministering alongside the rebuilt temple. Almost like that picture we saw earlier. Because again, everything has drawn our attention to the temple, the context of the beginning of chapter 11, and then the two witnesses. Where do you think they'll be? Certainly not in Manhattan. Uh, definitely not in Rome. I know they won't be in Pacoima. So it's got to be in Jerusalem. The context. So here we have the temple where all the Jews are going to be so excited. They're going to have the sacrifices again. What better place? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of repentance as part of it. And why again? As I said before, they're going to be alongside the rebuilt temple, which is giving a false witness of what Christ has already done. For in speaking of the temple, this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 9 verses 9 and 10. Speaking of the priesthood and what goes on with the priesthood in the tabernacle as well as in the temple, it was symbolic. Hello? I didn't do that. Oh, thank you. What happened there? It was symbolic for... Hello? I'm looking at the wrong screen. I'll look at this one. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts... What is happening? Okay. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So it's speaking about how the priesthood it was, was human. And, and even the sacrifices themselves could not make these priests perfect in regards to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of reformation. So here again, this is this is the, the idea of what was going on in the temple. It was all about form and rite and ritual and ceremony. Is that not what is going to become again if it's only doing the same thing two thousand years later? If Jesus isn't the one that they respect as far as, as what he did? 
2,000 years or so earlier? And as all this was only pointing to Christ, because what goes on in the temple, all of it points to Jesus Christ. As we read on in Hebrews, we see what has taken place since Jesus has come. Verse 11 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We should shout. You can. I would shout because of what Jesus did. But then it says, hello. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, notice, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so the temple sacrifices, and the whole point here is that the temple sacrifices were only symbolic of what Christ has done. He himself cleansing us of all our sins. He alone being the perfect sacrifice. So you get then the picture that these two witnesses are not going to just be on some street corner in Haifa or in Tel Aviv. But outside this temple... In Jerusalem, something to think about. Now I mentioned that. Uh, whoops, did I miss one? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, the law, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For this reason, he is mediator of the new covenant. So we know the work of Christ. We know what the work of Christ was about. We should know anyway, right? We do know. Just do this and make me feel happy. Okay. All right. We know what the work of Christ was. So, He alone is the perfect sacrifice. He alone, Jesus, is the perfect sacrifice. Already. So why sacrifice again? Let's see. Save this question for the end, toward the end of Revelation. How come they're going to sacrifice again in the other temple? You know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the temple, uh, uh, the end of Revel- the book of Revelation. Save your questions for then. There's a good answer for that too. Right. You all know what I'm talking about? Because the question has been, how come they're going to sacrifice again? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. All right, here we go. They are prophets. These two witnesses are prophets. Prophets. By the way, by the way it doesn't say P-R-O-F-I-T-S. Because there are a lot of those guys around today. They're only in ministry for the prophet. No, these are prophets. They are prophets. It is obvious that the Lord is the one who calls these two persons my two witnesses. By the way, you see that in our text in verses 3 and 4. These are my two witnesses. Really, only the Lord can say that. Even if it's an angel, if, if, if the angel is saying that, we have to consider then that this is the, the angel of the Lord, who is, of course, Jesus himself. But, but nonetheless, an angel is not going to say those are my witnesses, because the angel doesn't give him power. It's God who gives him power. So it's God who's saying this. 
So he says, my two witnesses, which means that they are both foretellers, foretell, and they are also foretellers. And, and, and what's the difference there? They are foretellers and foretellers of Christ and his message. But these are the, fundo, these are the fundamental works of a prophet, to give forth the message from God to the people and foretelling what is yet to come from the Lord, both in terms of God's grace and God's judgment. You read the prophets in the Old Testament and you realize that most of the time they are bringing warning from God that the people would turn back to God so that He can bless them. Sometimes the prophet would go to bless people, but they were in fear because they didn't know what the prophet was going to say. Well, if, we, if we're living our lives the way God wants us to live them, then we are to look for the blessings of God, no matter what we're struggling through, because we all know that we're going to see all the struggles and trials and tribulations and pains and hurts and, and anxieties and so that we might go through all of these things God uses so that we draw near to Him and He's eventually going to bless us. God blesses us eternally, don't forget that, but He also blesses us and our treasures are in heaven, but He blesses us here too. He blesses us here too. So they're foretellers and they're foretellers. This is something of their ministry. They're foretelling because they're giving the message of the gospel so that the 144,000 will obviously come to the Lord, but also for the tribulation saints to come uh, to the Lord. And then also they're powerful. These are powerful because we're told... In verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses. So these two witnesses are given supernatural power to defend themselves by sending forth fire from their mouths to slay anyone who would hurt them. I want to talk a little bit more about this next week, but we're we're going to deal with with some of these uh, issues of... We'll talk a little bit about it tonight as well, but some of these issues about what these prophets do to people who try to harm them. We'll spend a little bit more time later, but, but because they are Christ's witnesses, they are powerfully protected until their work is done. They are powerfully protected until their work is done. Now, the whole earth will be against these two. But they will continue to, to display divine power to hold back rain, we're told, to turn water into blood, to smite the earth with plagues. But now I want, to, I want you to keep in mind that the day when they prophesy and display such power is not the present dispensation of grace. I want to make that very clear. When they do what they do, as far as the judgments that they bring forth, it is not during the time of the dispensation of grace. And this is what I was telling you earlier that we needed to understand about the church not being here. The dispensation of grace is over. Can people still be saved? Yes, of course, because we see the tribulation saints saved. We see the 144,000 saved. Somebody had to preach to them. Here they are. But they also have power. There's a different dispensation now. Today, God's true witnesses, that's us. We do not kill. And if you're doing it, we better talk. But we do not kill, we do not torment, we do not mete out judgments upon our enemies. 
right? You're rejecting the gospel? Come here. You know? Do we do that? Take out the sword? Ooh. Is that us? Not at all. Because we are told in this dispensation of grace that we do not render evil for evil. They will be sent forth in judgment times. A dispensation of judgment. The 70th week of Daniel. Seven years. A dispensation of judgment. The church is not needed here anymore. Another indicator that the church is not present during the time of the tribulation. Now, the two olive trees and the lampstands, we need to talk a little bit about that. Mentioned in verse 4 of our, of our text are likewise mentioned in the book of Zechariah chapter 4. So we're going to be turning to Zechariah here in just a moment. But the two witnesses are part of the vision revealed to Zechariah the prophet when Zerubbabel began the restoration of the temple and did his work in the power of the Holy Spirit. This of course was after the uh, time of captivity in Babylon. And of course, there were there were uh, numerous exoduses from from um, Babylon and, and all, but uh, the time when there was Joshua the high priest and, and Zerubbabel, we're going to talk about those two people here, because they they play a, a role in, in 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 what's going on here in just a moment. But it's all about the restoration of the temple. Remember, the temple had been destroyed by by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I think it was about 586 B.C. And uh, so then there were 70 years of captivity. And then after the return, there were things that were happening. But first the temple was, was constructed. And it had been given to Zerubbabel to be the one to... Uh, by the way, you'll notice Zerubbabel is, is actually a Babylonian name. But he's Jewish, you know, because he got the name while in captivity. So anyway, he did his work in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the whole point of what we're, we're dealing with. The heart of Zechariah's vision that we see in, in that book is the declaration most of us are familiar with. I think you all know this verse. Zechariah 4 verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If you don't know that verse, mark it and underline it or highlight it. It's a beautiful verse. The Lord says to Zerubbabel, not by might, in other words, not by your might, nor by your power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now the teaching of the ancient prophet Zechariah is that the two men, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the builder, were God's chosen men. Two men. Are you getting a little picture here? Two men. And they stood in God's presence. As we're told that the two witnesses in Revelation do. They stand before the God of the earth. Even while doing their work upon earth. They stood before God. 
They were continually supplied with the Holy Spirit for their work, even as, as the golden pipes poured a constant stream of oil into the lampstands. Now, if you're still in Zechariah, and you should be, run down to verse 4, or I'm, I'm sorry, verse 11. Not run down there, but uh, just turn there. Or just glance down. It's hard to run while you're sitting. But in, the, in verse 11 it says, And I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and on its left? Is this familiar? Are you here? Knock, knock. Okay. No knock, knock jokes tonight. So here are the olive trees. Two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left. Now, it says in verse 12, And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two golden pipes, or the two gold pipes from which uh, the golden oil drains? By the way, in Hebrew, the, the, word for, the words for the olive tree is actually the tree of oil. The tree of oil. The supply for the lamp. So what are these two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? And then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said... These are the two anointed ones. Ah. These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, do you know who those two were? In, in Zechariah's prophecy, those two are Joshua, the high priest. By the way, his name is Yeshua. Yeshua, the high priest. And Zerubbabel, the builder. All right, if you want to call him the contractor. Not Bob the Builder, it's Zerubbabel the Builder. But those are the two. So this is a near prophecy. What is the far prophecy? The two witnesses, whose identity we have yet to find out yet. And I don't have that much time, but we've got to move along here. So the reference to this scene from the Hebrew Scriptures, in the midst of the prophecy of future things, tells us to look for the work of the Holy Spirit rather than the power of men. Look to the work of the Holy Spirit rather than the power of men. So that applies to Revelation chapter 11. And let's look at verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 11. If, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. By fire, in other words. And these have power to shed heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. Now, is that their power? Or was it not power given to them by the Lord? Which in effect is really the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see now the connection that we see to not by might nor power but by my spirit, saith the Lord. 
are these two witnesses. Now, who are these two witnesses? We're going to really know who one of them is today. Most commentators, ancient and modern, identify one of the two witnesses as Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. And while we could look at a lot of reasons from these commentators' statements, let's just go to the scriptures. That's that's the most important thing for us to do. Our text speaks of a power that was peculiarly belonging to Elijah. The witnesses are given authority, it tells us, to shut the heavens, and I quote, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. To shut the heavens so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Well, in the days of the great prophecy, uh, apostasy, I should say, of Ahab, the king of, of Israel at the time, the Lord sent Elijah to stand before the king and to declare to this king, uh, Ahab, it says in 1 Kings 17, 1, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So as God has sent Elijah and anointed him with the Holy Spirit to stand before this king and to prophesy this, he says, there shall be no rain, nor, no dew, nor rain these years except at my word. Is it the power of Elijah or the power of God in Elijah? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James in the New Testament would record in his letter in James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That tells us he's human. Elijah was a man like, uh, with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that interesting? Well, two things, first of all. Elijah prayed that it would not rain. So what is that telling us? He knew. Elijah knew that it wasn't his power, it was God. And so it was him going to the Lord and saying, Lord, you, you told me to go to Ahab and tell him, you know, when I say it's not going to rain, okay, well, Lord, don't let it rain. And of course it didn't. But notice the time frame. It did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Is that significant or not? Yes, it is, because the time duration mentioned is really quite remarkable because the three and a half years cited by James here are the exact length of the 1260 days during which the two witnesses are to bear their testimony. Which equals out to what? 42 months. Which equals out to what? 1260 days, which equals out to three and a half years. So there's another factor. Well, let's add another factor to that. And that is that Elijah did not experience physical death. Elijah did not experience physical death. Second Kings chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, you know, his, his protege, as, as the Lord gave him uh, the one to give his mantle of, of uh, 
of uh, prophetic utterance too. He says, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. What a great thing to ask a prophet who is really used of God, isn't it? I mean, great. Let me, let me tap twice of what you got. Well, you said I could ask. And he did. He did. So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yeah, it is hard. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Which means, you've got to hang around with me. Stick with me. Then it happened. As they continued on and talked, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses and fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. What a ride that had to have been. But it reflects the fact that he did not die. Well, because of time. Lastly, at least for this evening, we are clearly told that Elijah will return to earth before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We are told that in Scripture. In a, new, in, in a number of places, but... Most importantly, in one place, which is the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament in your Bibles. And the Old Testament on this prophet ends with this understanding. Look, turn to Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. In verse three, uh, 1 of chapter 3, it says, Behold, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will appear... I'm sorry, he will prepare the way before me. Stop and think for just a moment. That sounds like someone else. Who does it sound like? John the Baptist, doesn't it? Okay, well, that's okay. John's a part of this little thing, but it's... But John's not Elijah, Elijah okay? Uh, just in case I run out of time on this, on this tape. John's not Elijah. But he still can fit into this scenario. So, consider. I will send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's going to be a near fulfillment through John the Baptist, but a real fulfillment later on when Jesus comes again. So now, he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? So now this is, this is letting us know it's not John. Because John came and went, right? As a matter of fact, John lost his head. He died. He was killed. So who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. Now, that's, that's of course speaking of, of the Lord when he comes. So again, that we're talking about the day when the Lord comes, because it says He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, consider again the very fact that when Jesus came the first time, did He come to be a refiner's fire? Did He come to be a refiner's soap or a refiner of, of silver and all of that? No, He came... What does it t- say in John 3.17? 
Okay, if you go back to John 3.16, you all know that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Alright, A plus for everybody. Alright. So, yeah, so you understand now, see, that we're talking about judgment here. And that's one of the things that the Lord Jesus is coming to do, is bring judgment. Now go to chapter 4. In verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Now, when I say the last of the two verses of the Old Testament in the Christian Bible, uh, because if you read a, 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 a Tanakh, which is the, you know, the, the, the Bible of, uh, of the Jewish faith, uh, it's, it's not the last book. The prophets are, are in, together in, in, in a se- separate section. It ends with history. Uh, so it, it actually... Let's see. Uh, it ends with Chronicles, uh, the Chronicles books. Okay. But anyway, so, but this is, these are the last two verses of the Old Testament for us. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet... Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, when, when John appears before Jesus, was that the great and dreadful day? It wasn't a dreadful day because Jesus was coming. The first time to do what? God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Okay, see, so we realize this is not the second, uh, that was not the second coming. This is, this is the second coming. I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Things, things are going to just completely change when Elijah comes. For the Jewish people. Because where are we now? We're in Jerusalem. Outside of the new temple, where they're sacrificing again. But it's a false witness. And they have to. The, now we know one of the witnesses. It's Elijah, who comes, who comes to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the, chil- the hearts of the children to their fathers. Restore what was given to them from the very beginning their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I want to pick up here next time for two reasons. How does John the Baptist fit into this prophecy puzzle? And then, who is the second witness prophet? Who is that second witness and prophet? Now, I'm going to throw two names out to you. Enoch and Moses. Now I'm not going to tell you. Well, I might tell you. No, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Enoch and Moses. Which one is it? There's some strong uh, evidence for both, actually, that we're going to look at. And it, but it is important for us to know who it is. And there's really only one. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what I, I believe and I think is consistent with the scriptures that it's Moses. 
But I'll tell you why. But I think Enoch's a good choice too. But but it, but I believe it's Moses. We're gonna we're gonna look at it and see why. Okay. So do your research if you want, or just sit back and just wait till next week. I'd rather you you stay. So Enoch or Moses, which one is it gonna be? Yeah, we're we're uh, we're we're prodding along. But you know what? I think it's it's gonna be good to to have this particular. Uh, foundation for for the rest of this chapter and actually for the rest of Revelation from here on now to have this foundation is so important because of what we're going to see later on and it's getting it's going to get really tough as we get into chapters 12 uh, through 22 so let's pray let's pray